0: speaker for the Sunflower County United for Children Education Summit, educating the whole child. He is the founder and president of W.Y. Revolution Consulting, a firm dedicated to helping organizations solve complex issues using a system-thinking framework and equity lens. He shall challenge us to think about how trauma impacts children and families. He spent 18 years teaching at the secondary and post-secondary levels. As a professor at Loyola University in New Orleans, he devoted his time teaching and researching the development of adolescents and emerging adults in diverse contexts, particularly African-American males. His publications can be found in Urban Education, The journal of College Student Development, and the Journal of Men's Studies to name a He received his doctoral degree in psychological science from Tulane University. He also holds a Master's of Arts in Teaching from Norfolk State University and a Bachelor's of Arts in History from James Madison University. And he is a W.K. Kellogg Foundation Community Leadership Fellow. What is your revolution? mitigating the impact of trauma on children and families. Please help me to give this academic doctor, this clinician, this radio host, Dr. Charles Corpett, a Mississippi Delta welcome.
1: Good afternoon. to my great friend, Dr. Keisha Perry. Please give Dr. Perry a hand. Dr. Perry and I go back a little bit of ways. She also is a WK Kellogg Fellow and has been able to help me find my revolution. And so I appreciate her, her thoughtfulness and for giving and for her recommending me to spend some time with you today. One of the things that we do when we gather together is that we see each other from time to time and we say hello, and then we walk past. Not as much in the south, but when I go, I tend to meet people and they say hello and we move past each other. But there's something that I want you to do today. In between bites of the wonderful food that you've been served today, I want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, Sahuabona. Sahuabona. And instead of saying, hello, Sahuabona means that I see you. I see you, thank you. I see you. That's what Sahuabona means. I see you. I see all of you. I see your personality, I see your being, I see your essence, I see your aura. I'm not just saying hello, I see you. And too often we go around in our world and we want people to see us because we haven't been seen. So make sure that when you say hello, think in your mind, say bonus, so you can see that person and connect with them. It is a Zulu greeting, and the response to that is shikona. Say that with me, shikona. 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 It means that I am here with you. And so we're going to spend a little time today being with each other as we talk about the importance of finding ways of mitigating trauma that impacts our children and youth. I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself, if you allow me. As I began thinking about this talk that I was going to give you today, I began thinking about my favorite show. It's been off now for almost 10 years. It's called The Wire. Anybody watch The Wire? If you haven't watched The Wire, you are missing out on one of television's best shows. Set in Baltimore, it is more than just a crime genre. It talks about the fabric of a city with politics and education and crime and drugs, as well as relationships. I began to think about one of the scenes that actually stuck with me helping helped me with my research when I was in grad school in Tulane. There was a young man named Kennard. Kennard, by most instances, would be seen as an unruly child. He hung what they called in the show the corner boys. But one of the main characters, Bunny Colvin, decided to go into the schools and to promote a school setting that would bring the corner boys into a classroom and allow them to discuss what was going on in their lives, to be educated in a manner that was revolutionary in nature because they had not brought the corner boys together in a school academic setting. But there was one day that Kennard was tremendously upset and he ended up arguing and cursing out Bunny Holden, the main character that I was talking about. But instead of Bunny sending him down to the office, he took him to a side room. And as Kennard cried and bellowed out his pain, he asked, Bunny asked him, what was wrong? Why was he acting up so much in his class today? Because he had been a model student. And I finally wrote down and said, when I awoke this morning, I found my mother dead. His mother was a drug addict. She had overdosed the night before. So all what he could do at that moment in time was consultant. Many of our children bring this same type of despair into our classrooms, into our clinical settings, into our household. And as I began to think more deeply about this, I began to understand the definition of trauma. Because it is a very, fairly broad definition. Extreme stress that overwhelms our ability to cope effectively. But if you think about trauma, you think about stress, the things that I may see as stressful may not be stressful to you. It may take a number of events to elicit that response of stress because we may have the supports. Some of the research out there talks that we have a number. Some of those four, five, six events that happen to us happen to us before we have that stressful response. So I began to think, because we think about stress from a chronic perspective, trauma from a chronic perspective, that it has to happen over and over and over again for trauma to be a response then I began to think about the young daughter of Belanda Castile. As she watched seven shots go into her father, after he was stopped and lawfully instructed the officer that he was careful. I began to think about my friend who I had not seen for a long time. And we had drinks about three weeks ago. I said, what's going on? I haven't seen you in a while. And she began to chronicle to me how she walked out every day to talk to her neighbors. That's what we do in New Orleans. We talk to our neighbors. We have conversations. I'm sure that you do the same thing here in the Mississippi. We talk to our neighbors and the neighbors that she had talked to every day. But on this day, she walked out, and there was a man arguing with her friend. And before she could run over and find out what was going on, a gun was pulled. Shots rang out. Her friend was killed. He ended up going to Nepal for several months to deal with the stress of that trauma. And what we have to understand when we think about the definition of trauma, it is not chronic trauma that elicits a response. It may happen one time, and we have to think about that. that Our children and students may have a singular experience that they walk into, and they are affected for the rest of their lives. As I delved deeper, I was actually overwhelmed with the statistics, and so please forgive me. One, I am a storyteller, and two, I am an academic. And so began to look at the statistics that are happening with our children and their experiences of trauma. Roughly 26% of children in the US witnessed or experienced trauma before the age of four. Think about that. The brain is between zero and three. is the most expansive. The only other time is during adolescence. So if you're experiencing trauma and the brain is beginning to form its synapses, it begins to form arousal around the trauma instead of formulating arousal around positive experiences. In 2012, 686,000 children were victims of child abuse and neglect. More than half of the victims were between birth and age eight. More than 80% of these early traumas occurred at home and were perpetuated or perpetrated by the children's own parents. Think about that. The National Survey of Children's Exposure to Violence indicates that 60% of children from birth to 17 experience some form of victimization. Or half of our children experience some form of victimization, death, exposed to violence, abuse, neglect. Thirty-eight percent witness violence sometime during childhood. But you would think that as they grow, this trauma would lessen. It actually begins to increase as children age. Victimization levels increase as youth reach adolescence. Youth ages 12 to 24 suffer more violent crime than any other age group in the United States. Over the course of their lifetime, 71% of 14 to 70, 17 year olds suffer assault, twenty percent sexual victimization, 32% abuse or neglect, 53% property victimization. Including younger. So you think about children from birth to eight. Now you think about adolescence. More violent crime than any other age group in the United States.
0: Let's put this into a little bit more context.
1: The rates of trauma for African American children are even higher than the national average. Black youth aged 12 to 19 are victims of violent crime at significantly higher rates than their white peers. Black youth are three times more likely to be victims of reported child abuse or neglect, three times more likely to be victims of robbery, and five times more likely to be victims of homicide. And this is the startling statistic. In fact, homicide is the leading cause of death among African American youth ages 15 to 24. The lion's share of those deaths are African American males. The impact of trauma is detrimental, substance abuse, increased depression, risky sexual behavior, homelessness, and poor school performance. But the interesting thing about experiencing trauma is that People who are victimized are more likely to commit crime, including felony assault and intimate partner violence. You've heard that saying, and I hate to be cliche, that hurt people hurt people. It doubles the likelihood of problematic drug use and increases the odds of committing property crimes. But you would think that with all of the people here in this room, all of the things that are going on, all of the factors that we have that are trying to mitigate trauma and stress in our children and youth lives, that once it was reported, something actually happened. Sadly, the problem becomes intensified. Between 2 and 15% of children received the necessary support after a traumatic event. 2 and 15%. Among African Americans, only 9% sought non-policing help after a traumatic event. And you just saw the figures that showed that African American youth have the highest rates of victimization. Why? And as I had this conversation with one of my colleagues I began to understand, particularly if they are victimized, where is the support? Where is the masculinity in going to find help? Too often our young brothers are holding on to their pain of victimization. And as I say in my research on hypermasculinity, no one wants to be the lamb amongst the wolves. And so our young brothers begin to externalize their pain through anger and aggression instead of seeking help. But when they do go seek help, the people that are providing them with assistance fail to give them the culturally appropriate and the culturally responsive interventions and methodologies to help them survive, 9%. So we have an opportunity, and I remember as I was the director of the James Madison Male Academy, a program in Virginia at my alma mater that brought 40 to 50 young African-American males to James Madison University each summer. And I would have a group of staff who were also African American male and it was also a female program that coincided with what we were doing. And as you know, adolescent girls and boys, something is always going to happen. Our boys were mischievous, they were adolescents. And so when something occurred, My staff would always come running to me. But I was fortunate over years, as a director I was there for eight years, and I was able to keep my staff for most of that time, didn't have large turnover. And if I did, it was one or two, but I kept the core of my staff. And so in the beginning, they would always run to me and say, Charles, this is what's going on, so and so was doing this, so and so was doing this, so and so was doing this, what are we going to do? saying a word, and I would allow them to go through their seal. And they would say, why are you so quiet? Why? I need an answer. I need an answer. And I began to have this philosophy that I want you to take away from you today, is that we don't deal with problems. We understand that they happen. Our job is to find solutions. And so it was very interesting after... A number of years that they stopped running into my office to tell me what the problem was. They began to come into the office walking in calmly saying this is what happened but this is my solution. And they stopped and waited for me to say go or let me help you along with that solution. Too often we want to still harp on the solution. Too often we want to still harp on the problems that are going on with our children without fostering a solution. So we want to spend our remaining time together today talking about some of the solutions that we have for our children and youth that actually experience trauma. And it overwhelms their system that they don't have the support. As this power so eloquently introduced. I was an educator, I still am, but formerly an educator for 20 years. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, being able to walk into a school, impart my knowledge, and build relationships. But many of my colleagues were not as well in how to take care of our children. As I began to talk about what I was going to say today, I was talking about the speech on a plane and my seat made hurt me. And she asked me what I did. We got around to the point that I was telling her about the statistics. And she looked at me with dismay that the numbers of trauma affected children are so high. She made the most poignant statement of the conversation. experience. So I wouldn't understand what it's like to be a victim. I worked for 20 years and many times I overlooked what was going on with my students. It wasn't until that I had a mentorship program with young African American males and young African American females that I began to understand that trauma existed. This was the type of trauma that they were experiencing. Equitable leaders must understand the prevalence of trauma and the impact it can have on their behaviour and learning. As we know the statistics between poor African American youth and children of color, we lead the nation in academic disparities and discipline disparities, particularly for African American male youth. It is not just in Mississippi and Louisiana, it is all over the country too often the behavior of our youth is misinterpreted. If we do not understand that trauma, as I said, impacts communities of color more often than any other community, and that is now brought into our classrooms, we are doing our students a disservice. My good friend Natalie Burke, CEO of Common Health Action, talks about privilege. If you have not experienced you are privileged. And too often with privilege, we put on blinders and we miss out. She compares privilege to being able to float. Think of you, it's summer, it's hot in Mississippi. You want to go to the pool, you want to get out, you get in the pool, and you have that ability to float. On a sunny day like today, you're floating. What do you see? skies and clouds. But if you can't float, what do you have to do? You have to tread water. For those who have been victimized, it is like treading water. Each day you are reliving that experience. Many of our children have not not pointed out, experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, a reliving, a numbing of the experience. You are treading water, you are not floating. But what has to happen for those of us that can float through this, is that sometimes we have to realize that we have to turn over and give our hand out to those who are treading. Because eventually we become exhausted from treading water. And that's what victimization and trauma does. It is exhausting, the arousal, I walked into the gym on July 4th last year and asked my trainer was he going to see the fireworks display that is illuminated over New Orleans. He said, I don't go see fireworks. And I asked him why. He said I was shot. And the gunshots of the fireworks are reminiscent of gunshots. My privilege in asking him, could he go experience something that is a joy for many Americans he can't experience anymore. We have to understand that. The second part of this is understand that when you walk into a clinic, clinic, clinical office or you walk into a school, there must be a perspective shift. As I said, I was an educator for 20 years. I worked 10 years in a high school. Fortunately, it was at the high school where I attended. It's the best place on earth, the Rerun High School in so Virginia Beach, Virginia. got back to teach there, the demographic had changed. When I was in school there, students was out in BMWs that were going to Yale and Princeton and UVA. But when I got back there to teach, we could hardly get our students into community college. And many of our teachers wanted to put our students either behind bars or in ISS or out of school. Unknowingly, they had privilege because they had not experienced trauma what we tried to do for those of us who had come back to school and who understood what our students need is that we needed a perspective shift. We needed to see the behaviors our students were, them crying out and saying that I need to have my needs met instead of being compliant and that my behavior was being disobedient. Students want to do well for my educators in the room, isn't that correct? They come into school wanting to do well. They come into school wanting people to show them what it's like to have a successful life. As a developmental psychologist, I know looking at students, they're looking for someone to give them a way. Give them some way, a map. Because there are other forces, there are other stimuli that are saying, you can come this way what happens when you walk into that school, or you walk into your clinician's office, and you're not heard, and you're not understanding? The perfectorship shift begins when you realize that you refrain the behavior by identifying what are the student's strengths, or by giving them tools and techniques to calm when they re-experience that trauma. When Manuel walks into your classroom, and says that I have been exposed to racism and discrimination, tell them how to overcome these atrocities. When Rashad walks into your classroom and details that his mother has been diagnosed with cancer and she's dying, you put your arm around his shoulder
0: work in a collaborative
1: fashion. You understand that you are a partner in that person's life. Not only to him, but what the family as well. Tania Lugar, researcher, talks about schools being a club. We too often see schools at places where students walk in and walk out and all we do is educate. That is our job. I remember early on in the charter school movement in New Orleans, it was that we are the savior. Our students come in and we're gonna provide them with a, an education, but what they forgot is that our students were going home to neighborhoods that were not safe. They were going to home to families that had high employment. And what we have to realize now is that trauma-informed schools also act as hubs. They provide services for mothers. They provide services for fathers who can't find work. They provide child care for mothers who cannot go out and find a job so they can go out. But that's how we have to think about education these days, particularly for children who have been traumatized. We cannot only educate them, but as the, the model today says, we are doing what? Educating the whole child doesn't mean that they walk inside of our schools and that we impart knowledge on them, and they walk out. The third thing that happens with equitable leadership and trauma-informed schools and trauma-sensitive schools is that we begin to build strong relationships. It's interesting, because when I have conversations with teachers, they're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get inside my students. And I don't know how to build relationships. Isn't that all we do? Isn't that the crux of what we do every day? We build relationships. We walk into a bank and we build relationships with the mortgage person so we can get a mortgage, right? We walk into our churches and we build relationships with the pastor and the parishioners every day. We walk into Walmart and we build relationships with the, the teller with the checkout. We build all these relationships. So it's very hard for me when teachers say to me, I cannot build relationships with my students. Galen Johnson somehow took me. And I remember saying to him as he was beginning to graduate, why are you always hanging around? he began to chronicle the experiences with his dad. When his dad was married to his mother, they had some negative experiences. He didn't feel comfortable with his dad. Those experiences turned out to be something that I probably didn't talk about. But he began to latch on to me, and year after year, he stayed with me. He was in that group of young men called the Academy, where I brought together 20 young men who were doing well and who weren't doing so well. And we developed this relationship. He we went on to Radford University. psychology. It's those relationships. Simple, small, consistent relationships that happen every day in a child's life, in a youth's life, when they are looking for someone. You never know the impact that you have on a child's life. If you can give some time, Hard work, and what we have to understand that in trauma-informed schools, in trauma-sensitive schools, that equitable leaders actually think about themselves for a second. How many educators do we have in the room? Raise your hands high. How many clinicians do we have in the room? Understanding that teaching is tough work. You may have 30 35 students in your classroom. You may be overburdened with the standardized test that you have to meet. And now I'm sitting up here asking you to build a relationship with every one of your students. So if they are victims of trauma, that they have an opportunity to thrive. But too often when we talk about equity, we don't talk about teachers. We don't talk about clinicians. We don't talk about people who are lending a hand Last time that you provided some self-care, that you went out and took some time for yourself. Dr. Perry and I know firsthand from our Kellogg Fellowship that they promoted that as leaders in our communities, that we had to take time for ourselves. What does that actually look like? For me, it was actually going to therapy. The therapy is going to therapy. (laughs) Yes, going to therapy. Talking about the experiences that I have gone through. Having someone hear. Isn't that the same thing that our students need? They need somebody to hear, we need people to hear us. How are you using your professor's learning community? One of the things my good friend Jalan McNeil, vice principal at one of the schools in, in, in Philadelphia, she has this called greater than five. What happens to most teachers between zero and five years of teaching, burnout, thank you. Exactly, exactly. With all of the rigors that go on in our classrooms, all of the rigors that are then handed down from the administration, all of the rigors that are handed down from the state, burnout. What happens to our students who do not have tenured teachers They're not getting the best education. The research shows that if you can make it past five years, you understand the game. You understand the nuances of teaching. You understand your curriculum. You understand how to build those relationships. But many of our teachers are not staying 20 and 30 years anymore. One of those reasons is that they are not being provided equitable options for self-care. How many times has your administrator said, you know, I'm going to provide that self-care for you in our faculty meeting after school today? I see some of my teachers are laughing. No, because you've got to go right from teaching to hear me talk to you about
0: professional development. It's quite interesting.
1: During Christmas I had to do a number of professional developments and the teachers (laughs) hated me. Why? What happens? What does self-care look like? What we have to understand in this greater than
0: five initiative is that mindfulness. Oh, Dr. Corbett,
1: you want me to sit and meditate? Yes, I actually do. Or to pray. Find time each day, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes to meditate and pray. Whatever it is for you to find something that is heightened in nature for yourself. Go out and play. One of the things with the greater than five initiative is that they had play dates for teachers. Can you imagine that a scheduled play day after school for teachers? Because we're doing everything for our children, we fail to take time for us. What would that look like? A breathing, to unload, so you can come back the next day actually refreshed, being able to give your all. Would you want to stay more than five years? The last thing in trauma-informed schools and equitable leadership is understanding that we have to provide opportunities for resilience. We have to provide opportunities to give our students and new the tools. Because when they relive or when they experience that trauma, when it's there, when it's on their mind, when something has triggered them, if it's something in the classroom You've got to deal with it right then. But what if they had the self-regulatory procedures that you taught them? What if you had given them those tools that, when something triggers them and the anger is about to erupt, they know to come back to the plan? One of my good friends, Chelsea Hilton, is the executive director of Project Peaceful, Project Peaceful Warriors in New Orleans. And it is trauma-informed and trauma-centered yoga. And these two young brothers back here are looking at me like, man, I'm not going to do yoga. That was an interesting thing. I asked her, he's like, no, because I'm just beginning my yoga practice. And I'm like, I'm not going to yoga, Chelsea. Why do you, Nobody goes to yoga. I said, how do you get young African-American men and women to go to yoga? Because it's granola. It's tree hugger." said, it's a heart for He said, you keep going. You keep bringing the students in. You keep showing them the technique. You keep showing them the forms. You keep having to meditate. And time and time again, they're going to act up. And what happens is that, it's that young brother right over there. What's your name, brother? Yes. Huh? Dion. Dion says, you know what? A little better. You know, I tried this breathing technique the other day when my friend angered me and I didn't get into a fight. And he begins to talk about that story to his classmates. And so they sit and meditate. And then they get to do the poses time and time again. You know, warrior one, warrior two, peaceful warrior. And then they want to begin to teach the class. It becomes fun. It becomes a part of their practice. And she says, once that happens, you now get into the process of understanding that you can mitigate the trauma. But you have to find a way to get them involved and excited. If we do not find ways for our children to self-regulate, what happens? You remember the slide I told you about the statistics? When children do not receive help, and only 9% of African-American children actually went for non-policing help after trauma, they're most likely to do what? Commit crimes, increase their substance abuse. walk back into whatever aspects or whatever roles that you walk back into, is that you have a question that should be answered every day. And I ask that question to everyone that I work with. is the beginning question. It's what's your revolution? And a revolution is not, as I say, bloody riots in streets. Revolution is about personal change. Because there are people in this room that have experienced this. There are people in this room that go out and educate our kids, who provide services for our kids, and that the truest form of revolution actually begins within you. And as I say, global revolution does not exist without personal revolution. So I ask you each day, when you wake up, when you think about the great things that you're going to do today, be
0: able to answer that question. What's
1: my revolution today? How am I going to shift the landscape in my life? And when I walk out the door, I can be a beacon of light for someone else. Because you never know who's watching you. You never know what child is looking for that light. You may be that you may be the spark for them to say, I can make it through this. But well, thank you for your time today. I thank you for your. I thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. To help you think about your revolutions, to help you think about how you can mitigate trauma, and how you can formulate the revolutions in your life. Thank you.